Okay. <clears throat> Growing up, you know, um, where I lived, there was only one troll uh, walking distance to our house. Where we had 25 families we davened. And uh, Shul was a place where we got together to daven. You know, besides that, we had maybe an occasional bris or a kiddush. But um, when I come here and I see what comes out of Shul, the classes, the series, I'm always blown away. There's a Shavim series and a Shabbos series and a Shabbos initiative. And there's a class for almost every age group and every, you know, beginners, intermediate. And it's always fascinating and overwhelming, the amount of, of terror that comes out of, out of the Shul. And it's... Uh, this is, this is really what the purpose of a shul is. The Ramban writes that a shul is a place for Jews to get together and bring glory to his name. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous, tremendous honor and a privilege to, to be here tonight and to play a little, a little part in that. And Mert uh, Hashem, we should, be, we, should, we should merit to bring uh, glory to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name. You know, in the morning, there's always a, a rush to, to get the kids off the carpool. Not, not that I do that, my wife does that part, but uh, you know, there's five kids that have to get off to school and pack knapsacks and lunches and everyone has their homework. And then, especially by the younger kids, they need, uh, they need mitzvah notes, they need mitzvah notes. And sometimes, you know, my wife has to write five different mitzvah notes and she's running out of things to say. So I once told my wife, you know, especially there's not always something, you know, to write about. So I once mentioned to my wife, why don't you just write, David didn't bite his sisters today, which for him is not bad, honestly. So when I mentioned this to somebody, they told me that there was a, a comic in one of the Jewish magazines that there was a mo- this exact scene. There was a mother who was struggling to, to find something to write. And so she wrote, Dear Mora, my son didn't eat Eber Menachai today. That's a shame. And uh, well, I think it just, I'm not sure if the, the screen clicked off. I'm not sure, are we still on? I'm not sure if we're on or off. So anyway, with, with this year, I kind of it's I have that exact that same hergish, that same feeling of, you know, the Sarah said are obviously core values. They're 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 they contain the whole terror within them, and they're obviously central to to our Judaism, to our Yiddishkeit. And yet, when we come to one of the Sarah said like the one we're going to talk about tonight, adultery. So um, it's 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 hard to understand why that should be something worth writing home about. You know, it's this is something clearly that. Was not was considered by the entire world to be you know we're talking about Rashi explains Leisenaf is specifically a married woman who lives with a man other than her husband, so this is something that throughout societies in the world throughout history has been frowned upon. It's obviously something that's not accepted and really considered you know highly problematic. Oh, okay, it's considered you know for for anybody. So it's it's hard to understand why this would make it on the Sarasadibris. You know, I got. Um, once the Bacheca put up the sign about the ad for the share, so many people have stopped me on the street and said, like, with a smile, like, what are you going to speak about? And I understand that was the question. The question is, like, how does this pertain to us? So that's really what I would want to attempt tonight to, to discuss is how, you know, what, what lessons we can glean from Leisinaf. So I want to start with uh, uh, Halacha, one of the ramifications of, of Leisinaf. If a lady who was married did live with a strange man, a man other than her husband, so, of course, they both incur the death penalty, which is very uncommon because even if somebody did do adultery, um, they, would, they would only get killed if there was, it, was the, it was in the presence of witnesses, which is unlikely. But a more important ramification, and something that exists even today, is that that lady is no longer allowed to live with her husband. She has to get divorced. And she's not allowed to marry the man she lived with. So this is what the Gemara calls Asalabal Asalabal. She becomes prohibited to both of them. And... Leisinaf, adultery, is not something that's new to you know, our generation. Throughout, you look in the responsive literature, and this is something that the greatest halachic minds had to deal with, is questions that arose. You know, of, um, I want to share with you a specific story that uh, sometimes I think about during El. So this is an actual incident, unfortunately, that took place. And there was a, there was a man who apparently was the Talmud Chacham. He was a learned individual, and he wrote to the Naida Yehuda one of the greatest halachic authorities we have. And he says that he confessed to him that when he was newly married, he moved, the young couple moved into the in-law's house, which is very common in those days. That's how they got supported. And he had lived with his mother-in-law multiple times. And he wrote to the Knight of Yehuda saying that this is years later, he's a changed person, and he wants to do tshuva. 
and he wanted to know a prescription for tshuva, how to take care of what he did. And it's a fascinating tshuva. It's considered a, a, a very important tshuva because till that time, the way tshuva was looked upon by many people was harming yourself and fasting. And the Knight of Buddha really pushed in a different direction. And he, he, he didn't think that was you know, beneficial. And he gave him other ways of, of how to do tshuva. But what the Knight of Buddha writes, and this is terrifying, this is a real story, is Knight Buddha says, you know, when, when a person does such an act, so he sinned against God. So he says, everything I told you is how do you do tshuva to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to Hashem. But there's another element here. Your father-in-law has no idea this happened, and you have, to, you have to tell him that you lived with his wife. And he now has to divorce his wife. And you have to ask him forgiveness for the fact that he now has to lose his wife. And uh, of course, we don't know the end of the story. It's a, you know, it's a safer telling us the halacha, it's not telling us stories. But I always picture to myself what that conversation must look like. Imagine the tremendous humiliation and remorse that that person felt when he went to the, his father-in-law and, and told him. And you know, during El Sunday, when I'm trying to you know, think of the mood of repentance and coming to Hashem with shame for Averis, I try to imagine this scene, very powerful scene. And when we look at such a thing, it's, it's frightening. You could have a person, like in this story, he was married for years, wife, children, a family, and by one act, it's destroyed. The family is destroyed. The lives are destroyed. And of course, it has tremendous, like we saw, tremendous ramifications. If a child is born from this union, the child is a mamzer. In fact, you know, one of the most famous mamzerim started his own religion, as we know. That was Yashka. And... It's a, scary thing to, to, it's a scary thing to process. Somebody did an Avera, and it's almost irreparable harm. So, you know, I was giving it a, a thought for a while, and you know, it's hard to just wrap your mind like a person did an Avera. And the truth is, there's a greater context to it. And I want to explain the context, and this is, I think, it's relevant. I heard an idea from Rabbi Reisman that, um, honestly, I think about all the time, nearly every day, a very, very powerful idea. Reisman discussed the Sardis paradox. What's a Sardis paradox is the way he explained it. As he says, imagine you have you know, a, you know, a small pile of sand. And a bird comes and a bird deposits another grain of sand. And every few minutes it comes and deposits another grain of sand. So at every individual grain of sand that it placed, would you say that the pile changed? Not really. It's still a small pile. Eventually, at some point, it's going to be a massive pile. And yet, there's no point in time where you could point and say it changed. I have my own like Sardis paradox I see in yeshiva. You know, boys come into yeshiva in ninth grade. It's a boy I've been learning with for a few years. And they're very, you know, they're very small. They're school children. And then they walk out of 12th grade and suddenly I'm straining my neck to look at them. And Baruch Hashem, it's not only physically, but it's also spiritually. And you wonder when it ha- I saw, I see them every day. You don't see them grow. Four years later, and you look back and what happened? And Baruch Hashem, that's the Sardis paradox. And the Reisman said, it's a very, very true point. This is the story of our lives. Many, many people go through life and they have moments or years where they're on fire. A boy goes to yeshiva and he's learning and he's spending Baruch Hashem, I just came from Night Seder. By Golding, you caught me uh, ditching Night Seder. Supposed to be with the sun right now. And, uh, and Baruch Hashem, the boys are learning and they're on fire. And they spend the majority of their day and their efforts on Taira and mitzvahs. It's a beautiful thing. A girl goes to seminary, she comes home and she's on, she's on a high. A person is not religious, they learn about Shabbos, Taira and mitzvahs, they change their life. And people are inspired. And what happens, and uh, you know, I'm in the field of chinuch, so I see this all the time, is slowly that enthusiasm wanes. And it doesn't happen in one step. It's the Sardis paradox. There's no moment in time where you could say the person changed. But a little bit here, a little bit there, something they didn't do in the past, they started doing. And fast forward a few years, and they're not the same person. And you look back and you wonder what happened. But the Gemara tells us, That's how the Yitzhahar operates. The Yitzhahar doesn't come to people and say, in one day, or murder somebody, or commit adultery. The Yitzhahar gets us in little steps. A little, we bend here, we bend there. And the Gemara says, Eventually, the Yitzhahar gets, the, the gets a person to commit Avaydazar. And the same thing is true in Laysinaf. People who get caught up in this thing, I would imagine that if you ask them, did you ever dream that you would ha- do such an Avera? They would say, no way. That it would be them, they would never dream that happened to them. But it didn't happen overnight. One line was crossed, another line was crossed. Do you know, we're familiar with the fact that the Rabbanan, that the Rabbanan put fences around the Torah. 
The Torah says you can say Kriya Shema all night, and the Rabbanon say, say it before midnight. And in many places, the Rabbanon put a fence around the Torah to make sure we don't come close to, if there's a cliff, you don't stand near the edge, you stand a few feet back. In this sugya, in this topic, it's not, the, it's not only the Rabbanon who built fences around it, but the Torah does. The, there's a prohibition of a man being secluded in a room with a lady, and that is a, a, a prohibition on a Torah level, and a deiraisa. Most Rishayim hold that that is a din deiraisa. And if somebody fell to such a level where they committed an act of, of znus, of infidelity, then, then it did not happen in a day. That means there were lines that were crossed, it means there were fences that were breached, it means there was inappropriate interaction miles before the actual Avera happened. And it's a sobering lesson. I remember when I was in 10th grade, Marebi brought in a newspaper article, it was very, which is very not common for him. He didn't usually bring in things from outside yeshiva. And the newspaper article was two people, they looked like Orthodox rabbis. They were Meshugayim, crazy people. Incidentally, I found out that one of them was my relative, unfortunately. And the cover, and they were, these people had met with Ahmadinejad at a Holocaust denial center. They were part of some, you know, group of whatever, they were, they were, they were a bunch of crazies. And they went, because they were against the state of Israel, they went to another extreme and literally went to Holocaust denial thing. And this was, and the, and the newspaper article that Marabi brought in was a newspaper, I don't remember what it was, and it said, two Orthodox rabbis at a Holocaust denial conference in Iran. And Marabi said, you know, look at this article, and he said, these people are crazy. They are. They're nuts. But he said, they didn't start off that way. They don't wake up in the morning and say, let me go to Iran and hug a, you know, a Jew hater. It was a process. And it's a very sobering thought. When we see such a thing, we have to take a lesson from it. You know, where are we going to draw our lines? The Yitzhar doesn't come in one step. He comes slowly. Slowly. The halacha is that if a lady lives with another man before she's married, and then she gets married, she's allowed to stay with her husband. It's only when does, when does the prohibition take effect? When does she become Asa's husband? It's the second that the husband puts the ring on her finger and says, Hareat mukudesh when he marries her, from that moment onward, if she lives with another man, forever their union, their marriage is broken and she's not allowed to live with her husband. What does the words Harat Mukadesh mean? Very interesting words. So the Gemara, together with Taisus, the Gemara explains as follows. What does the word Kaddish mean? Ata Kaddish, Vishimcha Kaddish, we say Hashem is holy. So Kaddish really means separate. Hashem is separate from the world. Kaddish represents separation. And very often we find the usage of the word Kaddish to be, it's interesting, the border cities in Eretz Yisrael always have, the, very often have Kaddish connected to the name, like Kaddish Barnea, because it shows the edge of the country where it separates from another country. And so the word Kaddish represents separation. So when a man gets married, he puts a ring on his wife's finger, and he says, What does that mean? Till now you're available to the whole world. Now you're separate from the entire world. There's only one man in your life, and that's me. And yet, Taisa says Kaddish means something else that almost seems to be the opposite. Kaddish also means miyuchud, designated. On one hand, he's saying that you're separate from the rest of the world, and he's also saying you're designated for me. And of course, that's not a contradiction. It's two sides of a coin. If, if somebody, you know, uh, uh, I heard a muscle for this, if, if there's 10 cans of soda on the table and they're all the same, and you ask somebody, you know, which can do you like the best? That's ridiculous. Obviously, they're all the same. A person can't love everybody equally. It's just a fact. It's a nice thing to say, love the world. But the fact of the matter is, is that love has, the fact that you love your family members because you don't love the rest. It, it, the, 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 a person cannot love his family and love the rest of the world the same. His family is special to him because it's exclusive. His, he might be friendly to other people. He might be polite to other people. But his kids are his kids. His children are his children. And the same thing is true with a husband and wife. Their, their, their marriage and their connection to each other comes, and the fact that they're designated for each other, comes at the, because she's separate from the rest of the world. If he would go around and tell his wife, I love everyone else, I love you and I love the rest of the world too, how much would that mean? Somebody bought a, a book for Alder Bayman Yeshiva called uh, Just Love, I think it was Rabbi Silverman, but uh, called Just Love Them. Yeah, Rabbi Trank. So Rabbi Trank, um, for those of you who don't know, Rabbi Trank was a, leg a legendary rabbi. And uh, he, he passed away a few years ago. And um, he would take a lot of students that were very, very challenging. You know, behavioral issues and 
And uh, he would accept boys in this yeshiva that no other yeshiva would want to accept. And, um, and he had a tremendous, tremendous, just, he was a person who was full of love. And um, they wrote a book about him after he passed away, just love them. So I guess this is why it was bought for Alder Bayim to give us a hint, you know, how we should be, uh, how we should be teaching. But I saw a fascinating story with, uh, with Ari Trank that uh, it was a funny story. His wife said over that um, when, they, when they were engaged, he, he told her that he loves her. And she said they were taking a walk, I think it was on Shabbos, and he walks down the street. And he was a very, he's a person who was very giving. And everyone he walked down the street, I love you, I love you. So she said, I don't get it. I, I, you told me you love me. I thought it was special, but I see you love the whole world. So he told her, for you it's different, right? It's a different, it's a different love. But of course we understand that, that a, a husband's relationship with his wife and his love has to be different than the rest of the world. When he gets married, he's saying there's only one woman in my life. Of course, there's other people I could be polite to, I could be nice to and friendly to. But my eyes are just for you. His, his, his focus is on his wife. You know, in the Sarasa Dibris, of course we have five and five. We have five Sarasa Dibris that correspond to Ben Adam Lamakai between man and God, and five Ben Adam Lachavere. And the Mepharshim explained that if you line them up, you'll see that they correspond to each other. So I'll give you an example. We're up to number seven, which means it corresponds to number two. So I checked on the way in here, so the, the, the poster, right? On the right side it said, what's commandment number two? So Herschel Shachter, you should not have other gods, not to serve other, other gods. And that corresponds to what we're up to today, seven, which is that uh, the, for a married lady to live with another man, fidelity. And the idea is obvious. Kalal Yisrael, we're in that relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's not a parable, it's not a mashal, but Kalal Yisrael got into a marriage with Hashem, which is this week's parsha, Parshas Yisrael. In fact, there's a Arachayim, fascinating Arachayim, that, uh, that, that, that when the Pesukim describe Kalal Yisrael coming to our Sinai, so the Pesukim seem out of order. It says, B'chaydash Ashlisi, this is our parsha. let's say, B'nei Yisrael Meretz Mitzrayim, B'yayimuhu Bo Midbar Sinai. In the third month, they came to our Sinai, Midbar Sinai. And then it says, it tells, the Torah tells us where we came from. And so the Torah almost backtracks. It almost got ahead of itself. And the Arachayim says a fascinating idea. He says that there's something called Ava Mikalkelis Ashura. The Gemara refers to many times. Ava Mikalkelis Ashura means that when people are in love, they don't always act reasonably. And he says an, an unbelievable thing. You should, his word, his, the words he uses are incredible. He says, Hashem created the world for this moment. When he's going to enter in a marriage with Kali Yisrael, we're going to stand under the Harsina like a chuppah. And he says, Kiviyachal, as if to say Hashem couldn't contain himself. And he got ahead of himself. And he said, they came to Harsina because he couldn't contain himself. And then he backtracks and he says, let me tell you the story. But you see Hashem's anticipation and love for Kali Yisrael. When I was in Lakewood in BMG, so there was a lot of chasanim at the same time. And um, you know, so you have chasanim getting gifts for the kalas and vice versa. And one of the popular gifts at the time was a, a wedding countdown. You know, it's so like 2,400 hours left to your wedding, you know, and they counted down, which I thought was kind of funny. But so this is kind of the idea. Akadosh Baruch Hu is, is Kivyachal waiting for this moment when we're going to enter into a marriage with Akadosh Baruch Hu. And Avamika Kelsis Ashur says the Arachayim. He almost can't contain himself, and the Torah is written out of order to describe this, 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 this moment. Since we're in a marriage with Hashem, a marriage demands loyalty. A, mar- a marriage demands loyalty. And what does disloyalty to HaKadosh Baruch Hu mean? It means to, to go in the ways of the, of the nations of the world, to follow the Ummah Elam. In fact, I saw a pshat. You know, I tried looking it up before I came here, but I just moved and all my swarm are in boxes. I hope I'm saying this right. I wasn't able to look it up. But I remember seeing years ago a fascinating pshat. If, if, a, if a lady was Mizana, if she lived with another man, so if she did it before her wedding, she could still marry her husband. It's an Avera, but it doesn't, doesn't prohibit her from being with her husband. If she would do it after the chuppah, so then she's no longer allowed to be with her husband. Like we said, she's Asul Labal, Asul Labal. She's no longer allowed to be with her husband. Now, we, we said the idea of Kedushin is it's both separate and designated. Is a person is they're telling each other that we're separate from the world, and at the same time we're designated for each other. Now imagine for a second you had a Kala who's under the Chuppah and she's looking around at other men. It would be disgusting. It would be, it's, it's hard to even fathom such a thing. Imagine she would live with another man right then and there. 
It'd be not something we could even comprehend. And in the most humiliating moment, probably in our history, that's exactly what happened. Klai Yisrael was at Harsinai, and Harsinai is the Chaba with Akadish Baruch Hu, and we lived, so to speak, with, with, other, with someone else. And that was the Egel Azav. The Egel Azav was almost like a Kala. The Gemara says it was like a Kala who cheated on her husband by the Chuppah. Now, if that's true, and Hashem in his tremendous love for Klai Yisrael, he covered over the smell. Chazal described it as a bad odor, and Hashem almost took spray and covered it over for us. But if you follow this halachically, there should be a problem here. If a married lady lives with another man, she's also to her husband. She can't live with her husband. That means we should not be allowed to be with Hashem. So if I recall correctly, the Medrash says that Moshe Benu took the luchais, which was the ksuba, the marriage contract between Hashem and Klai Yisrael, and he ripped it up. And as if to say Klai Yisrael was not married yet to Hashem. And since we weren't married yet to Hashem, therefore we did the Avera when we were still single, and that's the way we could still marry HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Which is fascinating, because the last thing the Torah says, the last Pasuk in the Torah refers to this moment in history, when Moshe Benu broke the Luchais. And if we're understanding it correctly, that might be why. Moshe Benu saved the marriage between Hashem and Klai Yisrael by doing this. And the truth is, is that these are clear psukim and navi. Let me read you a pasuk in Yirmiyah, Parakim. The pasuk says, Lemar, hey nishalach ishes ishtoi, v'halcha mi'itoi v'haisel ishacher, hayashiv ala'oid, halay chanoiv techna fa'aratzahi, v'at zanis re'im rabim, v'shav alayinu Hashem. An unbelievable pasuk. The pasuk says, Hashem tells Kla Yisrael, if a man's wife cheats on him, is he going to take her back? He's not allowed to take her back. And Hashem says to Klai Yisrael, Va'atzanis re'im rabim, and you lived with many lovers. V'shavol I know Hashem, and yet I want you back. An unbelievable pasuk. And so there's this idea of just like a man and a woman have a relationship, and they have to be faithful to each other. We're in a relationship with Hakadosh Baruch, and we have to be faithful to Him. I went, I went a few years ago to, to Israel for the summer with my with my family. When I came back. Some, a man that I knew approached me. He's living a life of, that's very, very, let's just say very, very, very far from the Torah. Very far. And he came over to me and he said, where were you? I said, I was in Israel. So he told me, he said, oh. He said, I also went to Israel. So I said, really? When did you go? He said, probably before you were born. I said, okay, when was that? 67. I said, yeah, it was before I was born. So he told me, he said, it's something that, that very, hurt me very much. He said, when he was, he said, he, that's what he told me. He said he grew up religious. He's now far, far, far from it. And he said when he was 13, this was during the Six-Day War, there was a, somebody sponsored like a, a, you know, a tour to Israel with these 13-year-olds. He went for six weeks. And he said, I discovered there that, that I thought till then to be Jewish meant to keep Torah mitzvahs, to keep Shabbos, to keep kosher. He said, I went to Israel, and he discovered many Jews who were not keeping Torah mitzvahs. And I realized you can be culturally Jewish. And he said, when I came back, I was no longer keeping Torah mitzvahs. And I, I, I got very, very worked up. And I said to him, I said, it's not correct. The reason why we have to keep Torah mitzvahs is we took a pledge. When we stood under our Sinai, just like a wife looks at her husband, and they're, they're, they have to be faithful for the rest of their life, through thick and thin. We stood at our Sinai, and we promised Hashem that we're going to be faithful to him. And that's what binds us. There's no other option. It's not like there's another way to be Jewish. And this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us. A man gets up in the morning, he puts on tefillin, and literally he, he wraps, it's unbelievable when you think about this. He takes the straps, he puts it around his finger, like a ring going on his finger, and he says, He used the words, he talked, Erisin is marriage. And we remind ourselves again and again and again that Hashem married us. And there's so many reminders. Every time we do a mitzvah, we make a bracha. What does the word kiddushanu mean? Again, kiddushin. Hashem married us with his mitzvahs. What separates us from the rest of the world is the mitzvahs that we have. It goes without being said that if you, have, if you have a couple and they're living together and they're not doing anything wrong, the greater they could focus on each other and filter out the rest of the world, the greater the marriage could be. I was recently together with somebody who, who sits on a bezdin in a different city that, that does get in. That does divorces. And he was telling me something, you know, if a lot of us have heard recently, that the numbers are, are, are going up. 
And of course, I'm sure there's not one reason. I'm sure there's multiple reasons why that's happening. But some of the things that were brought up was there's a lot of exposure through technology and social media. People are exposed to a lot of other things. And maybe they're not focusing on their spouse the way they should. They're not focusing on each other the way they should. And of course, the love is just not there as much. If we're in a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then, then we have to realize the same thing. If we make a bracha, Asher Kiddushar that means we recognize we're in a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the greater we could filter out other things, the more we could focus on Him. I want to share with you something from Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Now, I, I want to preface the story by saying, what I'm about to say is a very, very high level. And it's definitely, and obviously this is not something for us, but nevertheless, I think there's a lesson we could get from it. Meir Shiva learned in Kailal with Reb Chaim Kanievsky when he was younger. And he told us this many times. When Reb Chaim's father was Nifter, the great stipler, the legendary stipler, Reb Shach said at the funeral that the stipler left behind a son who could fill his place. ben And Meir Shiva said he was taken aback. And he said all his friends were taken aback. Because Reb Chaim Kanievsky was not naturally gifted. His father was a genius. His uncle was a genius. Abraham Kanevsky struggled very, very much when he was younger. And he didn't believe what he thought Rav Oshach was saying was nice words, but just was not accurate. And he said, look what happened. <laughs> you know, fast forward, and Abraham's knowledge of Torah was legendary. And I want to add that it wasn't just legendary, but it's, it's hard to fathom. It really is. When I was in Eretz Yisrael as a bacher, we got a newspaper. And the front cover of the newspaper was the following story. There was a, a very famous story, but this is, it happened then when I was there. There was somebody came out with a computer, one of these computer programs for, that could do searches in the Torah. And they did a search in the Gemara how many times the word Maisha comes up, and they came out with a number. And they presented it to Chaim Kanievsky. And on the spot, he gave a different number. And, uh, and he explained that, that the computer was looking for the words Mem, Shin, Hey, and they mixed up Misa with Maisha. Now, and, and they, 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 they searched, and he was right. Now, no matter how smart a person is, I, I don't think there's any way to explain such knowledge of Torah where you could count instantly how many times a name comes up in Shas. And there's countless stories like this. And there's obviously something supernatural that's going on. And I saw a story of the Prime Kanievsky that I think explains it, but uh, I'll be honest with you, it's something I struggle with. I think it's a very, very powerful idea, but a very, not, not such an easy idea. Rabbi was asked about his supernatural knowledge of Torah. And Rabbi said, he quoted a Medrash in Shirashir. The Medrash says that Torah is compared to a barrel of, of oil. If somebody has a barrel of oil, every ounce of water that goes into the barrel means one less ounce of oil. So Rabbi said, the more you can clear your head from other things, the more you can contain Torah. Rabbi Kanievsky took this to an extreme. My, my roommate, when I was in yeshiva, went to Reb Chaim for Shabbos. He invited me, and to my enormous regret, I did not go. Honestly, I was scared. <laughs> I think I was a little scared. But, and my, my roommate came back for Shabbos. He told me that, uh, that it, again, he experienced this. Reb Chaim ate mashed potatoes, and he did not know what mashed potatoes were. And he asked, this is after Reb Chaim's wife passed away. So his daughter told my friend, that I heard this firsthand, that Reb Chaim davens every single day that he should forget everything other than learning. And he didn't know what mashed potatoes were. He didn't know what a hammer was. Now, that's obviously an extraordinarily high level. And that would explain why he had such intimate knowledge of Torah. But perhaps in our level, we could realize that the more we, the less we fill our heads with things that are, that are not important, the more we can focus on HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his Torah. The more love we reserve for his Torah and the less for the outside world, the closer we could be for him. We should, we should prioritize what we put our efforts into, what we put our emotions into, our passion into. Of course, we are, we're in a country that we're very appreciative we're here, we're Americans, and we have a karsa taif. But it's not, our, it's not our culture. It's not our people. It's not. And so I don't have to listen to every news item out there. I could fill my head with more important things. It's... There's a case in point. This is a Monday night. It's 8.30 at night. And what are we doing? We're learning Torah. Baruch Hashem. And the more we could filter out the noise of the outside world, we're not davening that we shouldn't know mashed potatoes, but maybe we don't have to listen to every, you know, 
thing that a politician says in every podcast and every news item that doesn't really concern us. And the more we could focus on Hashem's Torah and His mitzvahs, the more we could love Him and love His mitzvahs. And I want to end with, with a thought that I'm almost hesitant to say. That, um, you know, I, I, literally I thought about this the last, you know, last, right before this share. But I think, I think it's a true point. I think it's an accurate point. The analogy of a man with his wife and us, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is not my analogy, it's the Torah's analogy. And I was thinking, if you have a man or a woman who cheated on her spouse, I would imagine that there's no way they could look at the spouse in the eye. Even if they're keeping it a secret, there's no way they could look the spouse in the eye because they know they're harboring a terrible secret. I knew a man, an older man, who was living with someone other than his wife for many, many years, and he never told her. And when she died, he was beside himself with grief. You can imagine, and he should be. He understood that he hadn't been faithful to his wife, and he felt terrible about it. So imagine you have a man or a lady who, who was not faithful, and they're keeping a secret from their spouse. There's no way I would, ima- I can't, I would imagine, there's no way they could look the spouse in the eye, knowing what they did. I think that some of us have that same feeling with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You know, the other day I was davening here and ask, and there's a fellow next to me, not from this community, and the entire davening, he was busy with his phone, pulling out his phone, pulling out his phone. And I, I, I literally wanted to strangle him, you know? I was very worked up, like, you're talking to Hashem. You don't want to daven, don't come to shul. And it occurred to me that he's afraid to look Hashem in the eye. When we get up to davening and we face him, some of us feel that maybe I haven't been as faithful as I should be. And we have a hard time looking Hashem in the eye. And what's fascinating, if that's true, is the Svarim say that's a good feeling to have. If somebody is ashamed to face HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Svarim tell us that means he has Yer Shemayim. It's a good feeling, and it's a feeling that not, shouldn't be pushed aside, but he should embrace it. And you should recognize that that feeling comes from a very good place. That means deep down I'm embarrassed about the things I did and I'm having the thought of tshuva. And what's the solution? If we're still alive, we didn't do Eripil, you know, if, if, if God forbid a spouse lived with someone else, like we learned today, there's, there's really nothing they could do. It's over. It's over. If a mamzer was born into the world, the mamzer can never really get married for all practical purposes. But by us with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's nothing we could do that's irreparable damage. There's nothing we could do that's, that we can't turn back the clock. If we're still alive, then that, that means that there's things that we could, we could change. And if we have that feeling of being afraid to look Hashem in the eye, we should recognize that and realize, you know, that's a good feeling to have. That means I'm ashamed about my avarice. That's a wonderful feeling. There's a chasam seifer. Some seifer says that, that there's a minig in some communities to sing vidui, to sing confession. And Svadim told to still do it. They actually have an upbeat tune during El where they sing Chatan Lufanacha. It's a happy tune. And the Chassam Seifer was asked, is this appropriate? And the Chassam Seifer said, yes, it is. Why? He said, because on one hand, a person is ashamed about his Averis. He feels bad about it. But when you start to feel bad about your Averis, it's a wonderful feeling because that means you're getting rid of them. When you regret your Averis, they go away. And so if we realize that maybe we're afraid to look Hashem in the eye, that's a good feeling to have. Let me embrace that and do tshuva about it. And then I could look at Hashem in the eye. The more we could avoid the distractions of the world and things that tempt us, which we all have in our life, the more we could look Hashem in the eye when we get up to Davin and we do his mitzvah and we do his Torah, and the more we could glorify his name and we could face that Ava. And like the Psukim say, Klaisal turns to Hashem and they say, and we say, Hincha Yafa Daidi. You're beautiful. And Hashem turns to Klaisal and he says, he says, You're beautiful. And just like a husband can only have one person in his life, and that's his wife, Hashem literally says those words, and he says, He says, He says, I have one beloved, and that's Kla Yisrael. And he even says, He says, He says, Remove your, uh, um, he says, Remove your eyes from me, because I can't avert, uh, almost avoid your gaze. There's such strong psukim in Shir Hashirim, where Hashem describes the love that he has for Klai Yisrael. And in order for us to feel that love, we have to be ready to look at HaKadosh Baruch in the eye. And the more we're able to embrace his Torah mitzvahs, the more we're able to look Hashem back in the eye and say, Hincha Yafa Daidi. Yibayi Shalom, you're beautiful. 
and we could glorify his name and tell his beauty to the world and merit Hashem to glorify and sanctify his name.